Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. More than 600,000 Americans have lost their lives to the COVID-19 pandemic. And alongside the pandemic's massive illness and death toll is the economic devastation it has wrought. Over 9 million U.S. workers lost their jobs during the first three quarters of 2020. Faced with an impending poverty pandemic, federal lawmakers acted swiftly. They sent out stimulus checks. They expanded unemployment insurance. They increased food subsidies. They implemented the eviction moratorium. And they established cash payments for the child tax credits. In short, when they saw how many Americans were in peril, elected representatives worked together to expand the social safety net. And according to a recent Urban Institute report, the result of these efforts was to lift nearly 20 million people in the U.S. above the poverty line and reduce American poverty to its lowest rate on record. Now, some of you told us about what unemployment insurance benefits have meant to you and to your families during the pandemic, and whether you're worried about the end of federal unemployment benefits in early September. Hi, my name is Tanya. I'm from Tampa, Florida. For the first time in my 20 years of employment, I received unemployment benefits during the recent pandemic after I was laid off from a sales position of 15 years without those benefits, I would certainly be homeless and unable to feed my kids because I don't have a lot of education and I had only 15 years in sales, not a lot of work background. I received benefits and it was a lifesaver. Unfortunately, I found out that my part-time assistantship job for grad school that paid $300 a week was too much to qualify for unemployment even though I had been let go by my other part-time job and told to apply for unemployment. As a result, I now have to pay back money, nearly $3,000, in addition to not being able to receive the assistance that was helping make ends meet. So now I have no idea what I'm going to do because I can't go back to work full-time due to not being able to afford childcare because I have another little one on the way. So, yes, I've been extremely worried about it ending, and I have no idea what's going to happen next. This is Alexis, and I'm calling from Hill County. Hi, this is John Abbott from Hopewell, New Jersey. As a self-employed music teacher and musician, the unemployment benefits are a godsend. I try to bank as much as possible to prepare for the time when the benefits will stop. In the meantime, I'm working to rebuild my teaching practice and get more performance work. I pray the impact of the Delta variant will be minimal, but with a quadrupling of cases here in New Jersey, I'm not counting on it. Uh, We're going to have more on the federal unemployment benefits a bit later in the hour. But first, we're going to talk about this recent decline in poverty rate and what policymakers can learn from it with Sarah Beth Gale, Research Director at the Southern Economic Advancement Project. Welcome to the show, Sarah Beth. Thanks so much for having me. So first, how clear is it that the decline that we're seeing in poverty um, is caused by and due to the increased government spending? 
Well, I mean, it's it's very clear in the data already. And um, we actually released a report last week, Pandemic to Prosperity South, where we're tracking different indicators. And one of them that we're tracking is this monthly poverty estimate. And you can really see month by month how different assistance programs impacted the poverty rate. So stimulus checks arrive and the poverty rate plummets, particularly for children. The federal unemployment expires and the poverty rate goes back up. And so you can really see in real time how these assistance programs are impacting um, people who are living in poverty or near poverty. So on the one hand, this feels like good news. Like, look, here we have empirical evidence that when we spend and we spend in these targeted ways to directly help Americans and their families, we lift people out of poverty. Why would there be any bad news here? What are the critics of this? Well, I mean, absolutely. It's it's great news. And one thing I would say is, you know, these are old programs. Uh, Unemployment insurance has been around since the 1930s, um, earned income tax credit, food assistance, the 60s and 70s, the child tax credit, the 90s. And these are bipartisan programs. They've been put in place and supported across party lines. And so really what it's showing us is that we have the programs and mechanisms in place to attack poverty. And we've just flexed the muscle of those programs right now. And so I think that the question going forward is how much we want to flex that muscle outside of the pandemic. And so I think that critics will come and say that it is too costly, but I think that it's just a budget question in the end. So what are we willing to spend if our goal is to reduce poverty? And of course, there's that old saying that budgets are moral documents, right? If you, if you want to know what you believe in, look at where you spend your money. So how do we move on this great pandemic news, right? This is like the one great piece of news out of the pandemic is this idea that, all right, we've got the tools. If we resource those tools, um, we can actually change the economic future um, of America's most vulnerable. How do we create the political will to do that? Well, you know, part of these programs were safety net programs like food assistance, but others were really programs that were widespread universal, like the stimulus checks. And that was all about keeping the economy humming. Right. And so this isn't just about anti-poverty programs, but our economy depends on folks having confidence, being out there spending and having enough money to spend. And so I think that part of the conversation is not just the safety net and anti-poverty, but really, you know, how we're going to bring the economy out of this pandemic, really restore it and help it to grow. And one of the ways to do that is to ensure that folks have enough money to spend. So I think that it's both the moral and the economic argument that needs to be made. And I think that's exactly the policy conversation we will be in in the next few months as a lot of these programs um, reach their end. So on the one hand, I want to jump rope and, and, and cheerlead and be excited. On the other hand, how do I square these these graphs, these data points with the stories um, I've been hearing from across the country um, about hunger during the pandemic, about experiences of, of homelessness? The poverty line as a statistical measure is one thing, but how are poor people, actual humans, experiencing this pandemic moment? Well, that's, that's a great question. And I think that it really gets to it. The poverty line is one figure and it's in the aggregate. It looks across an entire year. And a lot of these assistance programs were really episodic. So you would get a stimulus check 
And that might help you make ends meet for a few months, but then it went away. Or you would get unemployment insurance and the federal, um, the extra federal unemployment insurance, and then it would expire. And so kind of we see this kind of lurching that happened that if you're looking at an annual poverty rate, really doesn't capture. And so families could really benefit for a few months and then um, dip back down into poverty. And so I think that's also an important part of the policy conversation is how we ensure that people are not lurching back and forth over that poverty line, but that the safety net really gets them to a place where they have the ability to go look for a better paying job. They have the ability to go get training and skills development. Um, and they're, they're not seeing that kind of up and down cycle um, that can happen when these benefits come and go. One of the issues that we've talked about um, on this show has been the issue of wealth, right? And, you know, when I'm talking about it with students, it's always think of wealth as kind of how fluffy your mattress is, right? So when the bad times hit, when unemployment comes, when a pandemic hits, if you've got a nice big fluffy mattress, you have something to fall back on. Um, and if it's thin and narrow or not there at all, then, you know, you fall down and, and, and harm yourself, we know that there is a massive wealth gap um, between racial groups. Is there any way that the programs that we're talking about right now, which are just kind of doing that, that momentary and maybe even back and forth lift, can they have any impact on the long-term question of wealth and of fattening up that mattress for everybody? Well, I think that the child tax credit is really where this conversation is going to land in terms of wealth and stability of kind of wealth building because it is such a momentous effort to really reach in and particularly lift up child poverty, but it's expansive. I mean, it's reaching the vast majority of families in the U.S. And so um, the conversation really is going to turn to whether that should be permanent. And again, like the earned income tax credit, uh, you know, we've had the child tax credit for a long time. And the question really is, at what level do we need it to be? And um, that's a real opportunity to make that permanent and, and really begin that wealth building um, through that tax credit program. Can you tell us stories of, um, just in, in order to take the policy and make it real for folks, some of the folks maybe that you've worked with, individual people or families that can really help us to see what, what these policies have meant? Yeah, you know, last fall, we did a survey with a tech company, Propel, through their Fresh EBT app. So these are households who are using food assistance, SNAP. And we asked about challenges in the pandemic, but we also asked, are there any programs that are making a difference for you? And overwhelmingly, it was unemployment insurance, food assistance, and stimulus checks. And we heard people say things like, I was able to catch up on my bills. Uh, Deny in North Carolina said that. Uh, Eva in Arkansas said, until SNAP went up, it was either buy my medicine or eat. A woman in South Carolina told us, you know, we never went hungry because of those pandemic EBT benefits. And so these programs made a real difference in people's ability to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to pay their rent. And finally, we asked folks, what do you want policymakers to know? And what was really kind of fascinating to us is people had very specific policy prescriptions that they were giving to policymakers through our survey. But a lot of it was come talk to us, hear about our challenges and hear what would make a, a difference in our lives. So that's something that we're really focused on going forward, particularly with the American Rescue Plan funds 
as state and local governments are putting these funds into place, we're doing a really hard push to have a commitment to community engagement so that those folks who are most marginalized can really guide how those funds can help make a difference in their lives. The Delta variant has increased cases of COVID across the country, but most uh, intensely the spikes we're seeing right in the South and right in many of these places um, where the need is greatest. Any thoughts about um, the fact that this pandemic is not over and what that means for the social safety net that we're seeing actually work right now? Yeah, you know, particularly in the South where where we focus, one of the things that, that we talk about a lot is Medicaid expansion. So even if we're seeing the poverty rate fall, which is great news, like you and I discussed, the Southern states in particular have not expanded Medicaid. So you might have a family that jumps above the poverty line, but the parents are still uninsured because of that lack of Medicaid expansion. So they're probably one medical bill away from going back into poverty or going bankrupt. And so, you know, our perspective is, is this is a health crisis. It's ongoing and we've got to continue to shore up our healthcare infrastructure, both through our public health system, but also through Medicaid expansion to make sure that people can weather this crisis and that we're marrying those assistance programs like unemployment insurance and SNAP uh, and stimulus checks with the healthcare infrastructure that will ensure that people can get back to work, can have healthy and safe lives. Sarah Beth Gill, Research Director at the Southern Economic Advancement Project. So appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much, Melissa. On September 5th, 2021, several of the CARES Act unemployment benefits are set to expire. But many Republican-led states have already halted the extra $300 a month in unemployment insurance payments. Lawsuits against this halt have been filed across the country. In Indiana and Maryland, the courts sided with the unemployed workers, and the states were compelled to accept the additional $300 in federal unemployment insurance for their residents. On Thursday, another court sided with the unemployed residents of Arkansas. I spoke with Kevin Dulibon, an attorney with Legal Aid in Arkansas, right after he got the news. We just got word from the judge that we've won our lawsuit, at least the preliminary step, forcing the state to reinstate all of these federal unemployment benefits for basically 69,000 people here in Arkansas. So it's thrilling news. Tell me when and why you filed a lawsuit. We just filed the lawsuit last week. What's happened is, um, of course, with the pandemic, uh, the federal government passed several new unemployment programs that kind of extended and expanded upon those that were pre-existing. And the state of Arkansas, as well as basically half of the states in the country, decided to terminate those over two months early. So that meant cutting off millions and millions of people of these you know, vital benefits that folks need to keep the lights on and pay rent and have enough food to eat and all of those things. And so we sued the state of Arkansas here to say, no, you couldn't cut these benefits off. You have to resume participating in them until they expire at the federal level, which happens right now as in early September. Now, help me to understand this, because like Political Science 101 says, if you're a governor, you, you know, you take um, dollars from the federal government to, you know, to provide goodies for your um, constituents. So why in the world are so many of you having to sue your governors in order to keep the federal government's unemployment benefits? 
Well, it's a mystery because as you say, like in Arkansas, for example, the value of these benefits uh, for just the 69,000 people who are here in our state is something like $30 million per week that would be fully federally funded coming into our economy. The stated reasons that the governors are doing this are actually based on false premises. The truth is that if you're receiving any of these unemployment benefits, you have to be making your best efforts to get back to work. You have uh, stringent work search requirements. And if you are offered a suitable job, you have to take it. And if you don't, you lose your benefits. So the unemployment programs, as they're currently working, are already meant to help people get back into the economy or to drive people back into the workforce to the extent that they're able to. The fact is, is that the economy isn't good for so many people and that despite their best efforts, folks are not able to get new jobs despite searching and being required to search. So how are we to understand that over and against what we so often have been hearing in the political discourse lately, which is uh, the problem is we've got a work shortage, right? Um, we've got we got plenty of jobs, not enough people to fill them. And, uh, and the main reason we don't have enough people to fill them is because folks are sitting home on unemployment. And that's patently false. And it just comes from either willful ignorance or maybe innocent ignorance, neither of which is acceptable. The fact is, is that program rules have been in effect for a long time. They were extended to these programs that require people to search for work, report their work search efforts, and to accept any suitable job that's offered. And if you don't do those things, you lose your benefits. And so anybody saying otherwise just is either pushing a false narrative or simply doesn't understand how these programs work. I know there were some states and, and even Arkansas who at least briefly right decided to end these benefits. Have we seen a surge in employment as a result of um, those benefits ending in the states where it did end? No. And there's been some studies that have come out these last couple of weeks that show that terminating these programs is not meaningfully affecting um, employment numbers in these states and may actually be doing the opposite. Now, help us to understand, I, I want to go back to the uh, the 69,000 people and the, I think you said 30 million a week, is that right? Yeah, roughly 30 million a week. Okay, so so help us to understand, those are big numbers, <laughs> or they feel like big numbers. What does that mean in a household? How how many dollars are, are people receiving, and, and what are those dollars uh, going to purchase? So for at least most of our clients at Legal Aid, we serve, you know, the lowest of low-income folks. It means 400 to $500 a week for most of our folks, maybe up to $600 a week. And this is, I mean, people paying their rent, paying their mortgage, buying food, uh, having enough gas so they can drive. So it's just basic life necessities that people are going without. And you can imagine all the, uh, you know, apart from the material, like suffering of not having enough to eat, you can imagine all the constant stress and worry of not knowing, okay, what's going to happen next month? Oh, the eviction moratorium is ending. Am I going to have a place to live? Is my, my school starting up? Am I going to be able to buy my kids the school supplies they need? Are we going to have enough to eat? You know, $400, $500, $600 a week is the difference between, you know, abject poverty and homelessness and, you know, immense human suffering and at least a very basic level of survival, right? It's nobody's living, nobody's living large off that of those amounts, right? It's just kind of basic survival. Clearly part of the reason that um, unemployment surged and did so, so swiftly in Arkansas and across the country um, is the the kind of economic repercussions of the COVID-19 shutdown 
gosh, 18 months ago now, right? Quite some time ago. But we're now watching COVID numbers surge again with the Delta variant. We know that places like Arkansas are also under vaccinated relative to the rest of the nation. Any conversations with um, either the people who you're serving or, or or with other folks who are decision makers and the communities that you're moving in about um, sort of what you're expecting in terms of the economic and health impact uh, of COVID going forward? So on the part of the people that we serve, very much so. All of our folks, um, you know, are concerned about what COVID exposure again would mean. And Arkansas is one of the leading hotspots, if not the leading hotspot of COVID right now. And we are in the bottom three to five states of vaccination rates. So all of our folks who we're serving know, hey, work is dangerous right now um, for many of their jobs. They're willing to go and do it if they have to, but it's, you know, risk of exposure. Kind of from the people who are making the decisions in the political class, we see markedly little interest or attention on kind of the human impact of what this means for people who are trying to work, go back to work, take care of themselves and their families. Kevin DeLibon is an attorney with Legal Aid of Arkansas, and he just got a big win. Kevin, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. It's a delight. to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. On Tuesday, the House Select Committee, formed to investigate the violent January 6th Capitol insurrection, held its first hearing. Earlier in the week, we discussed the racist language rioters hurled at Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn and the hard truths they revealed about our history. Everything is different, but nothing has changed. Why is telling the truth hard? I guess in this America, it is. The hearing took place despite opposition from most congressional Republicans who have largely resisted Democrats' attempts to examine the causes of the riot, including former President Donald Trump's role in inciting the violence. Following this week's testimony from law enforcement, we wanted to hear from someone with deep knowledge of the inner workings of the Capitol Police Force. Joining me now is Terry Gaynor, who served as the Capitol Police Chief from 2002 to 2006 and then as the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms until 2014. He's currently a CNN political analyst. Thanks for being here, Terry. Melissa, it's good to be with you. Thank you for covering this. We heard just a very brief portion of Officer Dunn's testimony. I'm wondering about um, how you felt uh, watching the testimony from him and the other officers uh, this week. I actually thought the testimony was uh, both chilling and agonizing. Uh, I know and have worked with uh, two of those officers, including Harry Dunn. So it was very, very personal. So you combine their personal experiences with the video that was shown during the testimony and that we've seen really tells a powerful story. But it was it hurt, actually. These were friends. Yeah, I, I had that same sense of just um, feeling gut punched. Can you help us to understand how Capitol Police are different from, say, our local police departments? Uh, is, is there something different about processes of, of recruiting or hiring or training? No, the training and the hiring is really very similar. They are full federal law enforcement officers. They go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, for six months after they've gone through a rigorous process, which includes the background checks and polygraph. 
These are men and women uh, with many of them have a college degree, some former military, some with uh, experience in the civilian world before doing this. Then they come up to the Hill and they go through another two months of school at a very unique training center just outside of Washington, D.C. And they go through a lot of specialized training of how it will be to police in and around the Hill. So uh, they pay a lot of attention to all the threats that we had definitely seen after 9-11. And uh, they are good, solid officers who are, some ride motorcycles, some in cars. We even had horses for a while. So it's a good federal law enforcement agency. So you mentioned a time period I want to hear more about. You served as chief during those years immediately following 9-11. What was the kind of daily sense of threat um, during that time? And, And what kind of effect did it have on the officers and on your protocols? Well, we nearly doubled the size of the department after 9-11. I had been the executive assistant chief in Washington, D.C., and asked to come over to take over that position. And so the threat, if people remember uh, after 9-11, was uh, improvised explosive devices, devices being delivered by planes and cars and trucks or backpacks, and then ultimately shoes. So that certainly was the concentration as we tried to harden the capital and the streets and bollards and who could go where and what type of access. And then even the big capital visitor center was developed so that people would only come in that way. So the threats uh, kept evolving after 9-11. But I have to admit, Melissa, that even when I was chief or the chief law enforcement officer of the Senate as Sergeant at Arms, we did not practice or anticipate at that time an insurrection with thousands of people storming it. We'd practice for a lot of things after 9-11, but not for insurrections, not armed rebellion. Uh, we had protocols in place that would have kept small groups that we anticipated could have tried to come to the skin. Uh, we had that Capitol Visitor Center open, so you would have to be screened to come into the building. But to attack in the numbers that were done there and uh, rush the uh, both the east and west front steps was not something we anticipated. We did not train to fight armed insurrectionists in the building. We did not talk about what use of force would be used in those type of things. So that was a shortcoming. Now, maybe after some of the incidents we saw over the summer, whether there were capitals being taken over, I think in in, uh, Oregon, in Michigan, maybe the thought process should have been changing. So, But that's what we're going to investigate if we finally have a good solid uh, committee hearing. I feel like that's extremely important um, for the American public to understand that even if there was intelligence coming in, and, and we'll learn whether or not officers had that intelligence, but that there wasn't a clear protocol. Because I got to say, I remember as I was watching it thinking, is this what they're supposed to do? Is this how it's supposed to happen? Well, let's say, like I say, we trained for one or two or three people rushing those steps, and we had enough officers, and there were enough officers to attack and confront them. We had uh, heavily armed people up on behind some ballistic podiums on each side. In fact, it could take further action, but it wasn't designed to repel hundreds and hundreds at a time. And I know even as this thing was unfolding in the immediate days, people said, why didn't you open fire? But number one, that's not the general protocol across the United States that when you have unruly mobs, there's all sorts of training uh, we've done over the years to try to use crowd control measures, less than lethal force. But the size of the crowd, the anger, the hate, the cruelty, the weapons they had, 
that requires a different thought process, not only by the Capitol Police, and they're undergoing that now, but law enforcement agencies around the United States. If they're going to be rebellious people who are intent to do harm, to take over, to hang, uh, who are that hateful, have that stone in their heart, we've got to think differently how we're going to manage that. Intelligence gathering is one way. I want to ask about a really difficult moment. On October 3rd, 2013, um, Miriam Carey was shot and killed by uh, Capitol Police. She was an unarmed civilian. She had an infant strapped into her car seat. Um, I have to say, I thought about Miriam Carey a lot as I was watching the January 6th events um, and wondering how it is that she could have been killed. And, And let me be clear, I don't, I'm, it's not that I wish for one more loss of life on January 6th, but are you, is part of the reason that that happened because of this protocol difference that you're revealing for us right now? Well, that's a pretty complicated question. So let me address the first one. We did and do have uh, different procedures when we believe a car is a improvised explosive device vehicle, the way to deliver that. So unlike police departments across the United States that have pretty much stopped saying you do not shoot at moving vehicles for any reason, even if the vehicle is coming at the officer, we don't shoot. But on the Capitol complex and other areas, if there's a thought that you are going to deliver a bomb, you are authorized to use force likely to cause death. Uh, I know some of the blowback on that. And frankly, I think there should have been much more transparency and people should see that now. But that's entirely different, uh, and it's a tough decision for an officer to make, and they're trained to make that decision, than it is to open fire on crowds of that size. That's just not how we do it. We don't turn dogs on crowds of that size. We don't turn fire hoses on crowds of that size. There's other things that need to be done to uh, break up a crowd and put defense in position than opening fire. That would have been the absolute wrong signal, terrible thing to happen. Terry Gaynor, thank you so much for joining us and walking us through this. Terry Gaynor served as the Capitol Police Chief from 2002 to 2006 and is currently a CNN political analyst. Terry, thanks so much. Thank you, Melissa. Something truly remarkable and rare happened this week in Washington, D.C., The U.S. Senate voted to move forward on legislation. Yes, you heard me right. Something actually happened in the U.S. Senate. Not a press conference, not a statement. Real and actual legislation moved through the upper chamber when 67 members of the U.S. Senate voted to advance the bipartisan infrastructure bill. The Senate has voted to move ahead with a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. In a 67 to 32 procedural vote late Wednesday, 17 Republicans joined all Democrats to begin debate on the bill. Ooh, child, I have begun to think it was not even possible for such a miracle to occur. And why exactly is it so surprising to discover that congressional lawmakers are actually making laws? Because most of the time, the Senate does nothing. And to be clear, that's not an ideological or partisan evaluation. It's an empirical observation. One made by Adam Gentleson, whose book Kill Switch reports, quote, when the Senate is in session, it typically takes half off Monday and Thursday and all of Friday. I'm about to run for the Senate, y'all. Here to help us understand what is happening in the Senate is Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate. 
Adam was also Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Harry Reid. Great to have you here, Adam. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I feel like um, I didn't want to say the big F word in the introduction, but help us understand what it is that allows the U.S. Senate to do so little. Well, it's it's the filibuster. That's that's the F word. Um, and, you know, what's what's interesting about the filibuster and what I write about in the book is that the way um, that it is used today is is very different from the way that it's been used in the past and, and much more destructive. Um, and I also uh, go through how it, it was not part of the original Senate and was actually runs counter to the framers vision for the Senate um, today. You know, the Senate was created to uh, protect minority rights and to give the party that's in the numerical minority um, a right to debate and to have their opinion heard and to try to influence legislation. But the idea was always that at the end of the day, you know, the majority would rule. And what you saw with the vote earlier this week that you mentioned um, was not a debate, not a vote on the bill itself, actually, but just a vote to open debate on the bill. And that's what's so remarkable about the Senate today. It's become so paralyzed that simply the act of deciding to open debate on a bill is a reason for celebration and you know a newsworthy achievement. That is how paralyzed we've gotten, and it's because of the filibuster and specifically the way the filibuster has mutated over the last few decades into something completely unrecognizable and very, very uh, destructive. So let's, let's walk up into some of those details. So first, look, I... I know that I am not alone in my adoration of certain like Americana films. And obviously, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Jimmy Stewart doing the sweaty, long working man filibuster on the Senate floor is like one of those moments that I think is in the minds of of many of us political nerds when we think, ah, we don't want to do away with that. That is debate. That is what the Senate is for. But that's not what the filibuster is right now, right? Absolutely not. And it's not even really what the filibuster was at the time. Um, it's, it was very much a whitewash of the filibuster. Um, you know, it, it, it was accurate in the sense that, you know, the way the filibuster was deployed during that period, and we're talking about uh, 1939 was when uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington came out. Um, you know, the way it was deployed then was that senators would actually stand on the floor and give a long speech. And you did have to sort of hold the floor physically in order to maintain the filibuster and to delay or block whatever you were trying to stop. And so that's very different today. Today, you don't have to give a speech at all. You just have to send an email and and we can talk about the reasons why that is. But it's, you know, it's as easy as sort of opening an app and and, and hitting it uh, today, whereas before you actually had to put in a lot of effort to deploy it. But um, the whitewash part is about how and to what purpose it was used. And the film, and the reason I think that it resonates for a lot of Americans, is the film has this underdog portrayal of uh, uh, you know Mr. Smith, an average guy who went to Washington, and he finds himself fighting corruption um, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and that is not how the filibuster was being deployed at the time. Um, the primary use of the filibuster at the time uh, the movie came out was to block civil rights bills from passing. Um, as I said, the movie came out in 1939. The most recent use of the filibuster by the time the movie came out was to block 
an anti-lynching bill that had passed the House of Representatives uh, and actually had majority support in the Senate and could have become law if it weren't for the filibuster. So during the Jim Crow era, from the end of Reconstruction in uh, 1877 until um, the passage of the first major civil rights bill in 1964, the exclusive use of the filibuster to block bills altogether, to stop them dead in their tracks, to make them fail, was against civil rights bills. Civil rights bills were the only category of bills that were killed by the filibuster during that 87-year period. And as much as I appreciate the importance of understanding that kind of um, supremacist, you know, white supremacist or racist history, that for me would not be enough to say uh, we should eliminate the filibuster because there's just, I mean, there'd be so many things we just have to get rid of if, uh, you know, if it was enough based in a kind of race, racialized history. I think what moved me most about your text was your description that no matter who wins? <laughs> like in most of the country, no matter what the actual preferences are of the American people, the filibuster can still kill it. That's absolutely right. I think, you know, I think it's, you know, as, as you say, it's, it's important to understand where, where it comes from. Um, and I think it's critically important to understand that it's not part of the fundamental vision of the Senate, because I think oftentimes it is defended as this foundational feature of our government, when in fact, it is basically a historical accident that was sort of ushered into existence um, by obstructionists throughout history and oftentimes with the prime motivation of maintaining white supremacy. But as you say, you know, after the 1970s or so, it started to be used by both parties on a variety of issues, not just civil rights. Um, and certainly Democrats and progressives could point to instances where it came in handy for them to stop something that they opposed. But when you step back and take a look at it, it is a tool that does two things primarily. One is to uh, increase the amount of dysfunction in our system and make it almost impossible for basic business to pass. Um, what was being celebrated this week is a as a huge bipartisan achievement is basically a glorified highway bill, which was something the Senate used to pass regularly on huge bipartisan votes. And now we're, uh, you know, it, it's, we are so dysfunctional that this is cause for great celebration. Um, so it causes massive dysfunction. But the other thing it does is that it it systematically empowers a narrow, conservative, overwhelmingly white minority over the majority of the nation. And I think that is the reason um, why it needs to be reformed. We talked a little bit here about how it's been used around um, the, the death of civil rights bills and like the fact that we're excited about a highway bill. And I'm actually excited that at least we're going to get to talk about a highway bill. But can you retell for our listeners the story of um, of, of how this filibuster, this kill switch, um, really intervened. And this was when you were working in the Senate with Harry Reid relative to um, gun control. Absolutely. So this this was a, a big turning point for me. And I think in a lot of ways, it was this moment that, that led me to, to ask the questions that led to writing this book. Um, so this was 2013, um, April of 2013. And we were... Uh, the Senate was considering a bill to implement universal background checks on handgun uh, or on all gun purchases. And this was in the wake of the Newtown massacre that, of course, had occurred in December of 2012. Um, and I'm sure folks remember, but this was when 20 first graders and uh, several teachers were gunned down in cold blood in their uh, classroom in Newtown, Connecticut. So, you know, this was an unbelievable tragedy, a horrifying massacre. The country was in full support of moderate, uh, modest measures to combat uh, the epidemic of gun violence in America. 
And the bill that came out of this process that had the most support was a bill to implement universal background checks. And so this bill had everything that you would think you would need in our system of government to pass, right? If you go back to Schoolhouse Rock, how a bill becomes a law, <laughs> this bill had it all. Um, it had the support of about 90% of the American people. Um, it had the support of a healthy majority of senators in the Senate, of 55 senators from both parties. It was written and advanced by two senators of different parties, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Pat Toomey of Republic of a Republican of Pennsylvania, who, you know, couldn't have been more different in their own personalities and styles, but came together on this bill. It even had the support of a lot of gun pro-gun organizations. It didn't have the support of the NRA, which was a big factor, but it had the support of lots of other pro-Second Amendment groups because it was seen as just a reasonable thing to do. Despite all of this, this bill failed in the Senate. And it did not fail because it couldn't get majority support. It didn't fail because it didn't have the public behind it. It didn't fail because it was a bad policy. It failed because a narrow minority of Republican senators who represented less than a third of the American population were able to rally in opposition to it and block it from passing. And they didn't have to give a speech on the floor at any point during debate. The bill was on the floor for about a week. A grand total uh, time spent debating it was about two hours by its opposition over the course of a week. Um, Mitch McConnell, who was the leader of the opposition at the time, spent a grand total of about two minutes debating this bill. So the filibuster that was supposed to be there to let senators have a great debate on the issues facing the nation was deployed not for anybody to give a speech, not for anybody to tell their side, but simply to raise the threshold that it took to pass this bill from a majority where it was for most of the Senate's existence to a supermajority with senators barely having to lift a finger and this bill implementing a modest, reasonable gun control policy supported by 90% of the American people failed quietly with not much debate in the Senate chamber. And that was a deeply alienating moment for me. I talk in the book about how after the debate, we met with some of the parents um, of the children who had been slain, one man in particular, a man named Neil Heslin, um, you know, a big guy, a Republican from Connecticut who would come to Washington with the thought that he would be able to persuade Democrats and Republicans to support this very modest measure that would possibly prevent other kids from dying like his son had, um, just sat in Senator Reid's office and, and broke down and cried. And we couldn't explain to him what happened. He thought he had done everything right, and he had. They'd built support for this bill. It was a reasonable measure but it failed. And our inability to explain that to him is sort of what led me to start asking the questions um, that, that led to this book, because this is not the way the system is supposed to work. Adam, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to retell that to us, because I think that was also very convincing for me, that idea that it's one thing in a democracy if we debate it, if we fight it out, and then you lose. I mean, okay, you lick your wound, you regroup, and you come back for another day. But it's really different if you don't even have to debate. We, we don't even have an opportunity to hold our lawmakers accountable for why they did or did not support something. So is it possible to reform the filibuster, perhaps not in a way that eliminates it altogether, but that forces it to be active, that forces some level of debate to occur so that at least the American people have a choice? Yes, the, it absolutely is. I mean, you know, reform it can be crafted in, in any number of ways. It is really only limited by the creativity of the reformers themselves. Um, and what you could do to, to meet the goals you describe is um, require senators to actually be on the floor if they're going to filibuster. 
um, you know, try to get it back to the the idea that, you know, if you have something to say, you're welcome to say it. And, and like you say, let's have a debate. Let's let's argue it out. Let's do it in full public view and let the American people decide who they agree with. Um, but, you know, on this gun control bill, the other side lost. They, they lost in every respect. They lost public support. They lost by not getting a majority. But then they won because they were able to block the bill. So let's let's switch that around. Let's let's make it so that if you want to win the debate, you actually have to persuade people to come over to your side. So you could implement a reform that would require senators to actually hold the Senate floor and give speeches if they're going to deploy the filibuster. Um, you could also you sort of narrow, you know, just set a certain scope um, for what would be allowed to pass through this more expedited process. You could decide to have a carve out is a very popular idea right now for things related to democracy reform or civil rights. Um, because right now, a lot of other things can get around the filibuster by going through this process called reconciliation. It's pretty arbitrary what gets to go through that process and what doesn't. It basically is what can comply with a series of very complicated rules that were passed in the 1980s. So again, not a grand Senate tradition. This is something that was invented in 1986. Um, so, you know, to, to expand the, the, the scope of what can get around the filibuster would be a reasonable thing to do, I think, especially given its history in blocking civil rights. So there's a number of, of modest reforms that you could pass that would go a long way to alleviating the dysfunction that the filibuster is currently causing and actually try to get it back to what it was supposed to do, which is to have people go to the floor and debate and let the American people decide which side they agree with after hearing you know, the arguments from both sides. So you said a couple times there, you could do this or you could do that. Who is the you? Who is it who could do this? A majority of senators of any party. Um, the Senate is designed to be responsive to the will of the majority. So as soon as 50 senators plus the vice president decided they wanted to implement a reform, whatever that reform is, they could do it tomorrow. That is not the hard part. The hard part is getting the votes to do it. Um, but once you decide what you want to do, implementing the reform is something that could be done in a matter of hours. Hmm. Sounds like a plan. Adam, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate. Please, folks, take time to read this one. Thank you for joining us, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. That's all the politics we have for today, y'all. We really appreciate you tuning in. Now, before I head out, let me give a quick shout out to our fantastic team that helps me to make the radio. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Lydia McMillan-Laird, Shanta Covington, and Katerina Barton. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Vince Fairchild is the genius on the board operating. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer, and Meg Dalton is our digital editor for the week. David Gable is our executive assistant, and Lee Hill is our executive producer. The Olympian Dominique Dawes was the guest MHP most geeked out over this week. So go check out that segment if you haven't heard it at thetakeaway.org. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Mm-hmm.